In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, this is the first time it's happened to me that I've been asked to preach on a set of passages I'd already preached on once. Our lectionary runs in a three-year cycle, so it was in 2019 that we last had these propers, as they're called. And it did occur to me as a pretty safe bet that even those of you who were here three years ago would almost certainly not remember anything I had said back then. I didn't remember what I had said back then. I did dig up the file on my computer to take a look, though, and I think the general idea still makes sense. Today is Christ the King Sunday, the last Sunday of what we call ordinary time, the season of the church calendar following Pentecost. Next Sunday, a new year begins. Our readings this week seem clearly chosen to highlight Christ's kingship. We have Jeremiah's prophecy about a righteous branch raised up for David who will reign as king with wisdom, justice, and righteousness. We have Paul's Christ hymn in Colossians and his rejoicing in our exodus out of the power of darkness and into the kingdom of God's beloved son. We have Luke's portrayal of the sign nailed atop the cross. This is the king of the Jews. What I had noticed before, though, is how these readings also seem clearly chosen to subvert expectations about kingship and highlight the otherness of Christ's kingship. Christ is not a king like the wicked last kings of Judah, the false shepherds, against whom Jeremiah is crying, woe, in our passage. He is not a king who saves his people by leading them in military victory over their enemies, whether the Babylonians of Jeremiah's day or the Romans of his own. He is a king whom Roman soldiers mock for being unable to save even himself. And while they're wrong, we know, he is a king whose triumph is by the blood of the cross. That, Paul says in Colossians, is how he rescues his people out of the power of darkness, reconciling all things to himself and gathering them around himself like a good shepherd. Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate asks Jesus. He doesn't deny it, but he never claims that title for himself either in part because he is so much more. As Paul's hymn declares, he is the image of the invisible God and firstborn of all creation, who is before all things and in whom all things hold together. Anyway, I continue to think that our readings draw attention to what a peculiar sort of King Christ is. But I'm not going to preach the old sermon over again in part because what struck me this year in thinking through these scriptures is that as peculiar as he is, Christ still is our king. And I guess I worry that kingship over my life isn't something I'm particularly inclined to accept. As an American, I think I'm inclined 
to equate kingship with tyranny and to favor government by the consent of the governed with citizens left at liberty to pursue happiness in their lives as they see fit. As a Bible reader, furthermore, kingship conjures up for me the woeful history of Israel's kings, only a handful of whom could possibly be considered good shepherds. Wasn't it sinful for the Israelites to ask for a king in the first place when they got fed up with Samuel's sons as judges? Didn't Samuel warn them that a king would want to take and take and take their sons and daughters, their fields and groves and flocks? He did, and they didn't listen. And we see Jeremiah describing the result near the kingdom of Judah's ignominious end. Just before our reading today, for example, Jeremiah is woeing away against the bad king Jehoiakim. This guy, instead of protecting his flock from being crushed in the raging geopolitical conflict of the day between Assyria, Babylon, and Egypt, instead forced his people into unpaid labor, constructing for himself a luxurious new palace. All this makes me think, good riddance to kings. But that thought won't quite do for a couple of closely related reasons. First, as Bob Dylan sings in the first track, on what I'm going to go way out on a limb and say is his best album, Slow Train Coming, you gotta serve somebody. It might be the devil, or it might be the Lord, but you gotta serve somebody. You can see this in the answer the chief priests return to Pontius Pilate. Shall I crucify your king? The shocked Pilate asks. We have no king, they reply. We have no king, that is, but Caesar. Having rejected Christ's kingship, they cannot but submit to Roman rule. As for the Israelites in the days of the judges, I take it what the author of 1 Samuel is highlighting as objectionable isn't the request for a king in itself, but rather the Israelites' demand for a king to govern us like the other nations. Among the various instructions God gave his people back in Deuteronomy for their life together in the land they were entering after the Exodus is a set of guidelines for choosing a king. I quote from Deuteronomy chapter 17. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it and you say, let us set a king over us like all the other nations around us, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. Well, here the people are in 1 Samuel asking for a king like all the other nations around them. Where were they going wrong? I surmise that it's in wanting to be governed like other nations as opposed to accepting whatever ruler the Lord their God chooses and hence submitting to his rulership in turn. That is why God says to Samuel, they have not rejected you. They have rejected me from being king over them. 
much as the chief priests did before Pilate. Returning to why we can't simply dispense with kings altogether, though, I think a big part of the reason why Dylan's lyric has it right is that we are so thoroughly bad at ruling ourselves. This is something that used to be obvious to ancient psychologists like Plato, who speaks disparagingly of the democratic souled person as someone who gives himself over to any pleasure that comes along until he has had enough, then to another again, without disrespect for any but cherishing all equally. Not a word of truth does he receive into the fortress of his soul, but if anyone tells him that some pleasures belong to beautiful and good desires, others to those which are vile, some he should practice and respect, others he should chasten and enslave, he says, not at all. They are all equal and to be respected equally. The democratic person pursues happiness precisely as he sees fit, Plato says. Yet this ends, Plato thinks, in a miserable tyranny of whatever desires rage most strongly over any thoughts or feelings that might try vainly to hold them in check. Now, my impression is that contemporary psychological research in many ways bears out Plato's ancient insights here. Daniel Hebron details in his book, The Pursuit of Unhappiness, various problems with what he calls the personal authority assumption, namely that people are highly authoritative about their own happiness, both by knowing pretty well what's good for them and by generally making good choices about how to get it. There are many reasons for doubting both parts of this assumption, stemming from well-known cognitive and decision-making biases, such as persistent affect adaptation, peak end effects, expectations effects, impact bias, lay rationalism, and so forth. I won't go into the various empirical studies Hebron details whereby psychologists confirm these biases. I'll simply skip to their upshot. It's often pretty opaque to us how happy we are. And our efforts at going after happiness are often pretty inept. For Hebron, challenging these aspects of the personal authority assumption also calls into question what he calls liberal optimism, namely the idea that we generally fare best as individuals and as a society when we are left free to pursue whatever aims we happen to have so long as we're not interfering with others. Plato, of course, challenged that idea too when he argued that democracies inevitably devolve into tyrannies. Plato's infamous Solution, however, as you may know, was ruled by philosopher kings. <laughs> and I'm here to tell you that whatever pessimism we might share about liberal democracy, the solution is certainly not King Lynch or King Roberts or God forbid King Wood. On that, I'm sure we can agree. 
We do need a king, however, and that king had better be Christ. So the question I'm thrown back on and want to pose to you today is how do I, how do we go about making Christ our king? Whatever my suspicions about democracy and the wisdom of crowds, I do have a great deal of esteem for the wisdom of this particular crowd, and I'm willing to bet that if I asked you to think for a minute and then holler out an answer to my question, how do I go about making Christ my king, I would get 90 different good answers. But I take it one way preachers in our tradition must allow themselves to be ruled is by searching for answers in the liturgy of a particular Sunday in the church's year, also by our vergers who start getting jumpy when we go over 15 minutes or so. <laughs> so just one brief suggestion, harking back to Jeremiah, excoriating Judah's last few bad kings as evil shepherds who take and take and take from their flock to build palaces and whatnot. Are you a king because you compete in cedar? Jeremiah facetiously asks Jehoiakim. You will be buried with the death of a donkey, dragged off and thrown out beyond the gates of Jerusalem. But what I want to suggest is that everything Samuel warns the Israelites, their kings will take and take and take from them, Christ, our king, demands from us no less. Our sons and daughters, our fields, groves and flocks, our fortunes, our labor, our lives. And just one more brief suggestion, if you'll indulge me, as we draw this church year to a close, and it's that we allow the rhythms of our lives to be ruled by the church's calendar. With a new Advent next Sunday, let's enter again a time of sober watchfulness for those aspects of our lives that we have yet to give over to Christ, our King's rule. Amen. Amen.